Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Hello, welcome back to the Always On EM podcast. This is a Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds episode. My name is Venk Bellam Kanda. I'm one of the attendings or consultants in the Department of Emergency Medicine here at Mayo Clinic. I currently have the privilege of serving as chairperson of education. And in that role, I have the responsibility of coordinating our grand round speakers. This is a huge honor, but also can be difficult. And so this past year, I started reaching out to select chairpersons of major departments and asking them within their department, who are the can't miss out on speakers? When I emailed the chair at UCLA, they were very quick to respond and they gave me one name. Dr. Sarah Krager. If you're not familiar with who she is, you really need to get familiar. She got her medical degree at the Yale University School of Medicine. She went on to do her emergency medicine residency at UCLA and served as chief resident in her final year. After that, she finished a critical care fellowship at Stanford University. Currently, she is assistant professor in emergency medicine and critical care at UCLA and serves on many institutional committees for both specialties. She is a frequent presenter on EMRAP. She has spoken nationally and internationally on emergency medicine and critical care topics, published at least 20 peer-reviewed publications, several book chapters, and is a highly decorated educator. She has won Teacher of the Year for UCLA's Department of Emergency Medicine several years in a row and is in contention in several others. She recently released an education website called icuedu.org and it has lots of additional emergency critical care content. It's a great website. It has great audio content as well. You should definitely go check it out. Dr. Sarah Krager brought the house down when she gave her talk on shock to our department, and it is a real privilege to be able to share it with you here and now. Without further delay, let's give the Always On EM podcast Grand Rounds floor to Dr. Sarah Krager. I'm super excited to be here, and I'm super excited to give this lecture. Um, this lecture is actually one of my newer ones, and so I'm excited to try it out and see what you guys think. So um, this lecture is called Reframing Shock. This is the obligatory no disclosure sign, and I have no disclosures. Um, as we often do, let's start with a case, except in this particular case, let's do what we do in the emergency department. And we're actually gonna start with two cases because it would be nice if we could just see one case at a time. Last I checked, that's not how our reality works. We have two patients come in to the emergency department at the same time. We have a one Mr. Browns and then Mrs. Jones. Mr. Brown is a 67-year-old guy. He has an unknown past medical history and he can't tell you anything because he's really altered and he can't breathe. His vitals, not so awesome. He's not tacky, but he's hypotensive. He's tachypnic. His sat is not great. Then we have Ms. Jones. Ms. Jones on the surface kind of looks, you know, vitals don't look as bad. She's only 43. Again, unknown past medical history. And again, she can't tell you anything because she's super altered. She's coming in though, and the only thing she's saying is that she has belly pain. Again, her vitals look kind of not so bad. I mean, she's tacky, but otherwise she's kind of okay. Then you go in and you look at the patients. And as good ER doctors do, the very first thing and possibly most important thing we do is the eyeball test. And Mr. Brown scores a C minus on the eyeball test. But Ms. Jones, she actually looks kind of worse than Mr. Brown and she gets only a D plus. Then, as we do, we get an IV, an O2, and we stick them on the monitor. And again, Mr. Brown is getting pretty concerning here. He's desatting, he's hypotensive, and Ms. Jones, you know, she's still tacky, but her blood pressure is kind of okay and her SATs are okay. So we then get some labs back because a nice, lovely triage person sent them from lab. And we get called for critical lactates on both of them. So we look through all of the other labs that everybody ordered in triage. And, you know, really most of them, the lactate's probably the most concerning thing, and it's elevated for both. So then we get some more studies, and we get kind of excited about Mr. Brown's chest x-ray because it doesn't look so good. Ms. Jones, you know, we glance at it, and the lungs are clear, and we're like, oh, okay, okay, not so bad. 
And then we get echoes on both of them, as uh, I have started doing on almost everybody who comes in who doesn't look good, and I imagine many of you are too. And so far, this whole picture is coming together nicely, right? Mr. Brown doesn't look great. His lactate's elevated, and, you know, his chest x-ray looks wet. His EF looks bad. We're starting to form a picture of what's going on here. Miss Jones, on the other hand, you know, her lactate's also elevated, and she's maybe not as sick because her blood pressure is okay, but her heart, her LV is hyperdynamic. So, so far, we're developing a pretty clear picture of these two patients. So, so far, not rocket science, but now we're going to start treating them. So what do we do for Mr. Brown? We give him some Lasix, some BiPAP, and some Norepi, because our hypothesis here is that he's probably in cardiogenic shock, right? His chest x-ray is wet, his EF doesn't look good, and he's hypotensive, so we got to support his blood pressure with cardiogenic shock. We're going to diary some at the same time. We're going to stick him on some BiPAP, and voila, let's see what happens. Now, what are we going to do about Mr. Mrs. Jones? So Mrs. Jones is giving us a little bit of a different picture, right? She's coming in with abdominal pain. She has an elevated lactate. Her chest x-ray, the lungs are clear, and her echo looks hyperdynamic. So what are we going to do for her? Well, we're going to do two liters of normal saline. We're going to do some antibiotics. We're going to do a CT of her belly. So these are our two hypotheses about these patients, and this is what we're going to do about them. So how did it go? Well, this is what we did for Mr. Brown. So this is what we did for Mr. Brown. And this is the point that I got called. And the ER doctor calls me and tells me, yep, we got a guy with cardiogenic shock. We treated him with all these very appropriate things and we're sending him upstairs to you. Okay. They give me the same story about Ms. Jones, right? Lady with probably abdominal sepsis. We gave her some fluids, some antibiotics. We're waiting on a scan of her belly and we're sending her upstairs to you. So everything's going great. These all sound like very reasonable signouts to me. And I get paged and Mr. Brown is doing fantastic. Mr. Brown is better. His blood pressure looks good. His sats are better. And they're paging to see if, you know, he looks so good. Can we just switch his BiPAP to high flow? Then the radiology resident calls about Mrs. Jones. And they tell me that the wet read of her CT abdomen looks like mesenteric ischemia. So I'm like, oh, okay, that's not so good. But, you know, we gave her some fluids um, and some antibiotics and, you know, so she's gotten some fluids and some antibiotics, and so she should be getting better by now, too. So I'm on my way down to see these patients in the ED when I get the following page about patient Jones. So she got all the fluids, and in fact, they gave her a third liter for good measure because they thought she'd want one. And after all of those fluids, her blood pressure is worse, and her lactate is worse. And they want to know what I want to do about it now. So what is happening here? This seems like a slam dunk abdominal sepsis. And even if she does have some mesenteric ischemia, it didn't look like she had a perf in the like, you know, 20 minutes it's been since, you know, we last scanned her abdomen. I mean, maybe, but unlikely. But she's getting worse. What is going on? Why is she getting worse with what seems like the completely appropriate treatment? Now, the thing is that the way that I had been taught to think about shock, I have just found insufficient. I find it insufficient to actually help me figure out these cases. So what are we going to do about this? Because, you know, the way that I've been thinking about shock and the way that I've always learned to think about shock um, sounds great on paper. It sounds great when you're a resident. And then I wasn't attending. And then I was being confronted with all these patients and problems um, that, you know, just weren't working with that way that I had learned. So what we are going to try and do is figure out a better way to think about shock. And, you know, a lot of the time um, when we think about that, well, we're like, okay, let's break it down first and figure out what are the problems we're having. Well, we really have three questions. The first question is, is my patient in shock? The second is, why my patient is in shock? And the third is, how do I fix my patient's shock? Now, what's my current mental model? How do I think about shock right now? Well, I think about it like, is my patient in shock? Well, what does that question mean? Well, is my patient hypotensive plus minus a high lactate, right? Then why is my patient in shock? Well, now I start thinking about what category of shock does my patient fall into? And how do I fix my patient's shock? What is the correct treatment for that category of shock? This is not the right way to think about shock, or at least maybe it's the right way, but it doesn't really help you solve some of the more complicated problems that we're actually confronted with.
And it actually doesn't get you there with Mrs. Jones. Because we thought that way about her and we came to some conclusions that turned out to be wrong. So what are we gonna do about this? What are we gonna do about the fact that the way that we've been taught to think about shock is not sufficient to solve all the clinical problems we're confronted with? So like all good physicians, we think if there's a problem that we can't solve, what should we do? We should get a expensive, fancy, newfangled technology. That is almost certainly a solution. What I would like to convince you of is that that is actually not the solution and what we should be doing instead is finding a inexpensive but newfangled way of thinking. And what we really need here is a different way of thinking about shock. Now, our first response to that is, okay, well, we need a new way of thinking and if we can't solve this problem with technology, let's solve it with a new algorithm, right? That's a new way of thinking about shock maybe, or at least it's a new approach to shock. So maybe that's it. Maybe we just need an algorithm to shock. Except that we've tried that already without great results. Uh, that was the whole idea, right, with surviving sepsis, is we did a little evidence-based medicine, at least hypothetically, and then we made this algorithm, and then we used it on a bunch of patients, and then what we eventually figured out is that the algorithm itself probably wasn't the thing that worked. That this algorithm probably and in fact, now the evidence is pretty clear, doesn't get us any farther and in fact may make things worse. Hang on, my microphone is dropping. Give me one sec. I have to say the new uh, earbuds keep falling out of my ears, which is really awkward when I'm giving a lecture, but here we find ourselves. In any event, um, yeah, so what we kept seeing with uh, septic shock in particular is that even probably those first studies, the Manny River studies, a lot of the difference in outcomes is just good physicians really paying attention to patients and using their clinical gestalt. And that result has been seen again and again. So if I'm saying, okay, great, it's not a new technology that's the answer. It's also not necessarily a new algorithm that's the answer. What am I saying here? Well, what I'm saying is what I think we really need to do is moving away from algorithms and towards expertise. Now, often when I say that, people are like, yeah, okay, that sounds all very not, you know, cool, but, you know, whatever, not really game-changing, right? Like, what does you even mean by that? Um, and it turns out I mean something very specific by that, because it's actually not a hand-wavy concept. I mean, I thought expertise was a hand-wavy concept, and still I started looking into it. And there's a really fascinating science of expertise. Now, to me, one of the most interesting and the uh, study that really formed my idea about how now I think about expertise and teaching expertise was this study. So they took a kid, he was just a college kid, normal college kid, and they did a study where they were like, okay, you need to learn to memorize long strings of numbers. That's what they were going to do. That's what he wanted to learn. Well, that's what they wanted him to learn. I don't know. He thought about it, but that was the study. So he started out like most of us do and could sort of memorize, you know, seven numbers at a time. That's why phone numbers are seven numbers, right? And so then he started practicing. And he, you know, went on as you think he would. He slowly sort of memorized seven, 10, 12, 14, maybe 21, 24. And then eventually something really interesting happened. At this point, rather than continuing this like very slow incremental progress, like we would all expect him to, he went from like, you know, 15 to 50 all of a sudden. And then he continued on in his incremental process all the way up to eventually being able to memorize 80 numbers. But the really interesting part is what happened right here? What happened in this not incremental but quantum progress from here to here? That is what is fascinating about the science of expertise. And what's extra fascinating about it is that you don't see this just in random college kids memorizing random strings of numbers. You see this in almost any kind of expertise, whether it's music or chess or soccer or surgery. We see this pattern. Why? Well, it turns out that what sets experts apart is not the number of hours necessarily they spend practicing, but it's the quality and quantity of their mental representations. Because it's going from here to here, this quantum leap, what happens there between you know, 20 numbers and 40 numbers is that the expert now has learned a new mental model. It's the difference between trying to memorize random strings of letters, then understanding letters form words and words form sentences. 
Because if I read you a bunch of random letters in Russian, how many of those are you going to be able to remember? But if I tell you a whole story in English, you're going to be able to remember that entire story because you now have switched to this mental model of it's not a random series of characters, but they form words and words form sentences. And once you understand that sentences form stories, you can now remember them. For example, you all can recite for me the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? When was the last time you heard that story? Probably when you were five. You remember a string of random letters you saw when you were five? Almost certainly not. That is that transition between making a mental representation and becoming an expert. Now, that's all very well and good, but how do we teach expertise? Is it possible to teach expertise? Because if not, I may be wasting my time here. Or if not, like, how do we really do this on a bigger picture level? Is this just sort of people who are very, very special and can figure out how to develop these mental models? It turns out not. Because the next thing they did in the study was they took guy number one who figured out how to do this and they were like, okay, you now can teach guy number two. We have a second guy who for some reason volunteered to be in the study. You teach him how to do it. And what they found was very interesting because guy number two had the exact same thing happen. That at some point he went from, you know, some number to some much bigger number, that same quantum leap. But it happened much earlier because now, the person who'd already gained and figured out the right mental model passed it on to him. So teaching expertise, what are we really talking about here? I think it's passing on mental representations that allow us to make that quantum leap. So rather than finding some expensive new technology that is going to help us with shock, instead, what I really think is trying to teach a newfangled mental model of shock that shifts your mental representation. Now, what the idea is, to go from, you know, what we used to think here, is my patient in shock? Well, blood pressure and lactate. Why is my patient in shock? Let's talk about categories. And how do I fix my patient shock? Well, what's the treatment for the right category? That's how we have been thinking about it. But let's learn to think about it a little differently. Now, I need to give a caveat here that, you know, expertise isn't easy. I believe that that's what we should be trying to achieve and trying to teach our residents. I think that teaching our residents to follow the arrows in the right algorithm you know, anybody can do that. We should not be trying to teach our residents and ourselves that. We should be trying to train experts. That's what we want to do here, but that's not easy. And so my goal in this lecture is not necessarily for everybody to be able to 100% employ the mental model that I'm talking about tomorrow. It's more to introduce the idea and let it percolate and maybe just give you a different lens to which you can view shock and think about whether or not you find it useful and maybe start figuring out how to apply it in certain ways to how you think about your patients. So let's start with question number one. Is my patient in shock? Well, the way that I was taught to think about this is that if the blood pressure is low, then they're in shock. If the blood pressure is normal, they are not in shock. The way I think we should be actually thinking about this is shock is a continuum that starts with physiologic stress and then progresses all the way to tissue hypoperfusion if not left check. The key point here that I will say again and again is that shock is not about hypotension. Shock is about hypoperfusion. Now we have this idea that somehow your tissue perfusion and your systemic hemodynamics are linked in lockstep. That, you know, if your blood pressure is good, you must be perfusing your tissues. It turns out that is not the case. Um, this is one of my favorite papers that's come out in the last 10 years. This paper talks about, quote, hemodynamic coherence. So my favorite quote that I think summarizes this paper is the following. Microcirculation, so tissue perfusion, microcirculatory alteration are associated with adverse outcomes in a manner that seems to be independent of systemic hemodynamic variables. What does that mean? That means that you can have a patient with a lovely blood pressure who's not perfusing at all. And we have these patients all the time. We just don't recognize them. The other morning, I was on rounds in the SICU, and there was a patient who'd come in overnight. And she was elderly, and she'd gotten hit by a car. So she came in overnight, and the CT chest, abdomen, pelvis was negative, um, or at least maybe there was a little bit bleeding in the leg, but I said, but overnight, she kept getting worse and worse and worse. And they sort of ultrasounded her chest and were like, oh, maybe her heart doesn't look so good. Maybe this woman is in cardiogenic shock, or maybe she has Takasubo or something like that. And it's actually her heart. So overnight, 
they put her on some pressors. And the sign out I got from the night team the next morning was that her blood pressure was better. And they were like, she's doing much better, she's fine. So I go see the patient. And if you don't actually look at the patient and just stand outside the room, everything looks fantastic. Her blood pressure's good, everything's great. The nurse was like, she's doing much better until you actually go in and look at the patient. Because the patient is sort of this like pearly gray color. And her blood pressure is fine, but she's on like a million of norepi. And her base excess is like negative 25. And it turns out she's bleeding to death into her leg. And she's in a hemorrhagic shock. But with a lot of pressors in the ICU, I can make somebody's blood pressure whatever I want it to be, but that doesn't mean they're perfusing their tissue. Because at the end of the day, if you think about it, we have our macro circulation, our systemic hemodynamics, but really that helps us not at all unless our micro circulation is intact. Or another way of thinking about it is that our macro circulation is our oxygen delivery vehicle. However, if the oxygen delivery vehicle gets to where it needs to go and doesn't actually deliver the oxygen, then we haven't gotten ourselves anywhere. So if that's the case, why is it that we're all obsessed with macro circulation? Why is it that when we talk about shock or think about shock or try and admit a patient to a hospitalist in shock, the only question is, what's their blood pressure? Well, I think it's one of these issues. I think it's a measure what is important, not making important what you can measure problem because we like things that we can measure. And it turns out that we can measure the macrocirculation. We can measure blood pressure. We really like that, you know? We can write an order set that says, okay, titrate the norepi to a map of 65. We can't really write an order that says, you know, titrate the norepi to tissue perfusion. That's not gonna work. When we try and admit a patient to a hospitalist, they can be like, is the map over 65? How's the blood pressure? And if we say it's good, good luck admitting them to the ICU. And if we say it's bad, good luck not admitting them to the ICU. We are obsessed with this blood pressure number. The problem is that you can't assume that just because your microcirculation and macrocirculation are in the same body, that those numbers march together. Because sometimes it's the case that your macrocirculation looks good, your blood pressure, all of those variables are lovely, and your tissue perfusion is also good. But it can also be the case that even though your systemic variables look good, you are not getting tissue perfusion, like in the case of my trauma patient. On the other hand, it can be the case that, in fact, you are perfusing your tissues great, but your systemic hemodynamic variables not so good. And we see this all the time in the liver patients. You know, they'll come in, they have chronic liver disease, and everybody's losing their mind because their blood pressure will be like 80 over 40. And the patient's sitting in there, like texting on their phone and eating flaming hot Cheetos, and is like, why is everybody freaking out? And they're perfusing fine. They just live there. That's what their blood pressure is. Okay. So I just told you that, unfortunately, macrocirculation and microcirculation tissue perfusion and our systemic hemodynamics don't always march together. And so using the blood pressure to measure tissue perfusion is not going to work. But can't we just check the lactate, right? Like, that's nice. It's a number. We can give it a cutoff. If it's greater than the two, they're in shock. If it's not, they're not. Is lactate the magic number that will solve all of our problems? I am really unhappy to inform you that it is not. Lactate, unfortunately, is not a magic number that will solve all of our shock problems. Why? It's because of this really nasty little thing called stress hyperlactemia. So normally, on a normal day, the way we were taught to think about lactate production is that what? Lactate is produced when you go into anaerobic metabolism, right? You get tissue hypoxemia, and you get tissue hypoxia, and then voila, you have lactate, right? So bad tissue perfusion equals positive lactate. Turns out, Yes, but no, that that is only one reason that lactate can be high. And the other one that is at least as important is this one, stress hyperlactemia. So how does this work? Okay, let's take a normal sort of physiologic stress, but like a very mild. So when we get stressed, we need you know, a little epi habits. What does epinephrine do? It activates our beta-2 receptors. When that happens, we start upregulating glycolysis, right? Our cells are like, okay, stress, we got to get some more energy. Fantastic. So we upregulate glycolysis. If you go back and remember biochemistry, which fair enough if you don't, but we'll just stick it up here. You upregulate glycolysis. What does it do? It gives you more pyruvate. Pyruvate into your mitochondria, goes into the TCA cycle, and voila, you have energy via aerobic metabolism. 
But what if your body is now under an intense physiologic stress? So you really, really have a bunch of epi rolling around in there. You really, really activate your beta-2 receptors. You really upregulate glycolysis. What does that do? Well, you produce a ton of pyruvate, a lot more than normal. Now, at some point, you feed all that pyruvate into the TCA cycle. But at some point, the TCA cycle gets, you know, full. The TCA cycle's like, no, no, I'm good. I don't need any more pyruvate. I can't use it anymore. Thank you, but no. What has happened? to all that pyruvate when the TCA cycle is just overflowing. It gets converted into lactate. And now we have hyperlactemia. But note, is anaerobic metabolism, is tissue hypoxia anywhere in this mechanism? It is not. And so stress hyperlactemia is a really important mechanism. And this is why lactate is neither sensitive nor specific for shock. Because just because your lactate's elevated, doesn't mean that in fact, you're in shock, unfortunately. That's not what that's telling us. And one of the early phases of shock, as we'll talk about, is a physiologic stress, right? And so physiologic stress, often you'll see it much more in young, healthy people. And so if our conception of shock involves lactate, but not just as the end product of tissue hypoxia, but also as an early product of compensated shock when you're having physiologic stress, well then, your little old lady, she doesn't have a great physiologic stress response. Her lactate might not be elevated early until she falls off that cliff. So low BP equals shock. That's not really how we should be thinking about it. Instead, instead of saying low BP and positive lactate definitely equals shock, we need to be a little more sophisticated. This is how I have grown to think about shock. Shock is a physiologic stress on a continuum with tissue hypoperfusion. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? Well, we are going to use an analogy. We have a swimmer. And unfortunately, that swimmer is swimming in a very rapid river that has a waterfall at the end of it. Now, the swimmer is trying to keep up. And what ultimately the swimmer is trying to do is get over to the side of the river. And that's you over there standing on the edge of the river, trying to like reach out a helping hand to help your patient out of the water, because that swimmer is our patient. Now, I want you all to think for a minute the last time you went swimming or biking or running or some kind of intense activity. Now, especially think about it if you're trying to swim somewhere and if you don't swim fast enough, you're gonna fall off a waterfall. Now, at first you're gonna be swimming okay, right? You're not too tired, but then you're gonna have to start swimming harder. You're getting tired. Now your heart rate is going up. Now your blood pressure is starting to go up. You're starting to sweat. You're starting to get diaphoretic. You're starting to work really hard. And if you're pushed hard enough, you start getting really tired and you're like, can I just swim one more stroke? And we all know that feeling of exhaustion when we're not sure if we can just swim one more stroke, go one more mile, get up that hill. And at some point you just give out, right? Your body's just like, I'm too tired, I can't, I'm done. And you start going more slowly and slowly and backsliding and backsliding. And that is the difference between compensated shock and decompensated shock. When you have compensated shock, you are undergoing an intense physiologic stress. But as long as that is balanced out by your physiologic reserve to meet and exceed the demands of that physiologic stress, you're still moving forward. You're okay. You're moving towards the bank of the river where your lovely physician is going to help you out of said river of shock. But when a patient gets to the point where the physiologic demands that are being placed on exceed their ability, their physiologic reserve to overcome those demands, that is decompensated shock. That is when they start moving backwards in the river. And if they fall off that cliff, then that goes to death eventually, because now they're just completely hypoperfusing their tissues. That leads to end organ dysfunction and major organs, it turns out. So that eventually leads to death. That is how I think about compensated and decompensated shock. Now note that physiologic stress can also produce some lactate and we have a good understanding of when that transition occurs between lactate being produced by intense physiologic stress versus lactate being produced by true tissue hypoxia and decompensated shock. But we see that lactate under other physiologic stress situations or even under just beta activation, right? So we see it in the physiologic stress partially of seizures. We see it if we give an asthmatic a million of albuterol and some IV epi, 
often you'll see a bump in their lactate, right? That's a physiologic stress. But in the context of shock, there's a continuum here. So that is compensated and decompensated shock. But unfortunately, there's also an entity that we like to call a cult shock. Now, I think a cult shock is sort of a funny name for it, um, because what's really happening is that our patient is in shock, we are just failing to notice it and failing to recognize it, mostly because we conflate blood pressure with tissue perfusion. But to be clear, the patient is in shock, we just have failed to notice. And hopefully now that you realize that blood pressure and tissue perfusion are not the same thing at all, in fact, there will be fewer patients who are in a cult shock, even though the same number of patients who are in actual shock. So that's compensated, decompensated, and occult shock. Now, what about this one? Well, when we've successfully identified that my patient's in shock, but we don't know why, that now is undifferentiated shock. So we are now at the point that we're saying, okay, I've correctly identified that my patient's in shock, but what kind of shock are they in? So why is my patient in shock? So the way that I, and I'm assuming you all, were taught to think about this was categorical. What category of shock are they in? I am going to try to convince you that instead of thinking about it that way, we should think about it differently. Instead, we should think about it as a vector sum of three pressures. I know that sounds crazy now, but give me a minute. So categorically, what's the way that we were taught to think about shock? Well, this is the traditional shock paradigm. Hypervolemic, distributive, cardiogenic, and obstructive. Those are the four kinds of shock that we were taught about. That is your shock differential diagnosis. And to a point that works really well. But at some point somebody was like, you know, that works really well, except it doesn't really help us that much when we're trying to figure out at the bedside what is wrong with my patient, particularly because when this traditional approach was developed, we didn't have a lovely thing called ultrasound. So then what did we do? Well, we developed a much better, much more functional way to think about this at the bedside that really helped us break down what's actually happening in our patient. And that is the pipes pump tank model. However, that model, I would say, only gets us so far. Because to me, that was the model that I was using, you know, by the end of fellowship, about my shock patients. And it worked in a lot of ways to help figure out what's going on at the bedside until I kind of hit a wall. And I was like, okay, that's great, but it's still not getting me there. Why is that? Well, I think it's because of this reason, that both of these models, but certainly the latter, predisposes us to a very particular hemodynamic worldview. And that hemodynamic worldview, the problem with it is that it is very MAP-centric and LVEF-centric. And there is a problem with that because really those are almost the only two variables we focus on, this idea of forwardness. So that I believe is insufficient. What do I propose instead? Well, this is when I get into what I, at least in my head, have started calling the three pressures model. Rather than the four categories of shock and the pipes pump tank model, I have started thinking about shock and teaching shock as a three pressures model. So what's the idea here? Well, the issue with the way that we're used to thinking about shock is that it's all about blood pressure, right? Even if we take, okay, blood pressure and tissue perfusion are separate things. So we have our tissue perfusion, that's great. And it's all about the blood pressure, okay? Well, we already talked about the fact that shock is not about hypotension, it's about hyperperfusion and that blood pressure and perfusion pressure are not the same. And so that this model is incomplete. So that, that magic happening right there, that magic of tissue perfusion, it's not just about the blood pressure because there are in fact more factors at play than just that blood pressure, just that forward pressure. So the way that I have in fact started thinking about this is this, that when you are thinking about that magic of tissue perfusion, it is actually subject to three competing pressures. You do have in fact your forward pressure, but it is also subject to your back pressure and to your external pressure. So why is it then that we are so into this idea of forward pressure? Um, I think, again, it's one of these, right? We like forward pressure because we can measure that, you know? We can take a look at the map. We can take a look at the LVEF. We like the blood pressure. We do a quick echo. Is the LV kind of squeezy? Fantastic. We can measure those things. Therefore, we like them. And that is what gives us our very forward-centric idea about tissue perfusion. But I think there's another thing. I think humans in general are just very forward-centered creatures. This is why, for example, when you're on an airplane and they're like, 
don't forget the most closest exit could be behind you. It sounds dumb, but why do they even have to say that? Well, it's because humans are really into forward. It's not really our fault we do that in medicine. Humans are just like, the problem is if you only think about forward pressure, you're only seeing part of this very complicated machine that's happening. But it intuitively makes sense, right? Like we think about the forward pressure much be much higher than the back pressure. Even if we're a little more sophisticated and compare our MAP, our blood pressure to our CVP, we're talking about a significant difference in numbers. So how can it be that if our MAP is 65 and our CVP is 10, there's even any contest here? How on earth are they even close to competing with each other? We now have to go back yet again to med school. I promise no more biochemistry, I promise. But back to another diagram that I studied in medical school that looked something like this. Now, when I first learned this in medical school, I learned it for the test and promptly forgot it because I didn't think it was a useful diagram. And then years and years later, I came back to it and was like, oh, that was actually kind of useful. So to remind you guys of what this diagram means, um, we have a little map of our circulatory system. We start with our aorta and then going all the way down, arteries, arterial capillaries, changing into the venules, veins, and finally vena cava. And what this looks at is looking at the mean pressure in each of these points in the circulatory system. So we start, you know, where we thought, the mean pressure in the aorta that then starts coming down in the arteries. But then look what happens right here. There is a huge pressure drop between the arteries and the arterioles. And so even though our arterial pressure, when we're measuring our blood pressure at the level of the arteries, we're like, it's fantastic, it's great. The problem is that when you've now gone through the arterioles and you're at the end of your transit through the arterioles, it's actually way down here. We're talking about numbers more like 20. Now, what's the issue with that? Well, the issue with that is that that whole pressure drop happens before the magical point of tissue perfusion. And that's what we care about, right? We don't care about the blood pressure. We care about the tissue perfusion pressure gradient. And now if we're looking at that gradient, that gradient that is responsible for tissue perfusion, actually, if we compare the forward pressure here compared to the back pressure here, all of a sudden, those numbers don't look that different. All of a sudden, we're not talking about the difference between you know, 65 and up and 10. We're talking about the difference between maybe 15 to 20 and 10. And so all of a sudden, we start thinking, wow, that is maybe not the way we looked at it. Maybe it's more like this. Maybe it's not all about the forward pressure. Maybe we should, in fact, start thinking about the back pressure. Now, that's all very well and good. But there's one other pressure that has a significant effect on our tissue perfusion that we need to think about. And that is our external pressure. So here's the thing about external pressure that's different from back pressure. The thing about external pressure is that we do actually think about it and know about this variable because every now and then it comes roaring in announcing itself quite aggressively. And we don't think about it as an external pressure thing, but when does it come roaring in aggressively and actually is? cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax, and abdominal compartment syndrome. Because think about it, what is the problem in all of these things? Is the problem that we need to improve the blood pressure, right? Like if you know you have a patient who comes in with a tamponade or a tension pneumothorax, are you like, ah, yes, we shall simply improve their blood pressure, we'll give them some pressors, we'll give them some fluid, and that'll fix the problem? No. What do we do? We're like, well, actually, you need to relieve the external pressure. That will fix the problem. Now, that's when external pressure comes roaring in quite loudly. But it's still there, even when it doesn't announce itself with quite that degree of force. Because it turns out that there is a tiny but mighty tissue hydrostatic pressure that is in fact acting on this nexus where you're having tissue perfusion. And it is not helping you with tissue perfusion. Now, if you think about it this way, this is the point at which you're sort of recognizing that like letters actually form words. At some point, and we're not even gonna quite get there in this lecture because we still gotta put this in a bigger picture context to make it usable, but at some point you go from reading words to being able to form sentences like this with a model of the circulatory system. And eventually 
you can read and write whole books if you all of a sudden start putting this in the context of forward, back, and external pressure. But we're not going to do that right now because this is just an idea of how you would use this and starting to reconceptualize how you would do this. So let's figure out how to use this in real time because before we need to like start thinking about that we actually want to learn to read stories let's think about is this actually going to help us because where this really helps us is the question of how do i fix my patient shock now the way that we're used to thinking about it is this linear dichotomous approach where what category of shock are they in if that category of shock we shall treat it rather than what I'm gonna try and convince you is a better way to do it, which is an iterative hypothesis testing approach. So what do we do when we're doing this linear dichotomous approach? Well, we've broken down shock into four categories, right? The problem with doing that is that it gives us a couple things to do, but not very many. Because if it's hypovolemic shock, we give volume. If it's distributive shock, we give pressors. If it's cardiogenic shock, we give inotropes. And obstructive shock, we forget what that is for a minute, but then recall that it's, you know, tension in thorax or, you know, tamponade, and we stick a needle in it and call it a day. But that doesn't leave with a lot of options. And nor does the pipes pump tank model, right? Because if your pipes are empty, you give pressors. If your pump is not working, you give inotropes. And if your tank is not full, then you give volume. And that's kind of where things fall off, right? Like a lot of the calls I get in the ICU are, okay, we've gotten the patient and they were hypotensive. And so we gave some pressors and maybe a little inotrope if their LV was down. And then we gave some volume and they're still really sick and their lactate is high. And in fact, they're getting worse and not getting better. And that's exactly what happened with Ms. Jones. And what now? what now because this model kind of falls off here it feels like you know that shell silver pain film the where the sidewalk ends that's kind of how i started feeling about this that my sort of forward centric hemodynamic view left me at a place where i'd done all these things and i was like and the patient's still not getting better now what and that moment really came home to me when i was first an icu fellow uh because in the ed it was great because i would be like i don't know the patient's admitted to the icu and I remember having this moment when I was like, okay, great. The patient is now admitted to the ICU and that's me. That's really unfortunate because I don't know what to do next. And so that's when I started thinking hard about is my forward centric hemodynamic worldview the thing that is really going to help me because it got me here, but it's getting me no farther. And so instead of proceeding with my forward centric hemodynamic worldview, that's not really getting me anywhere. Do I think to think about it differently? For example, rather than saying, I need to increase the forward pressure, do I maybe instead need to decrease the back or external pressure? Because here's the thing, the blood pressure, a good blood pressure, it only tells you that the forward pressure itself is more or less okay. What it doesn't tell you is whether the back and or external pressures are elevated to the point that the perfusion pressure gradient doesn't meet the needs of the body, doesn't meet the threshold for adequate perfusion. So that's kind of where your linear dichotomous approach gets you. What I would like to propose instead is what I'm calling an iterative hypothesis testing approach. And this approach, you know, I actually recently gave a lecture uh, about applying the same approach to ventilator management, for example. I promise not to get into ventilators during this lecture, but my point is that practicing the thought approach of iterative hypothesis testing not only helps you with shock, but I think can really help you take care of any sick patient. So what I mean by an iterative hypothesis approach is it's not so much a yes, no, good, bad, this or that diagnosis. It's that you have a hypothesis about what is going on with your patient. Then you have to act because in the ED, we don't have the luxury of saying, let's get all the data, let's get a swan and an MRI and figure out everything else before we can do anything. I mean, in the ICU, we have the luxury that you guys have already collected a whole bunch of data. So I have a much better place to start my hypothesis and I can often act on a pretty good one. But in the ED, we don't have that luxury. So we need to start with a hypothesis, but then we need to make some decisions pretty quickly. So we start making some decisions. We start making some management decisions. And then here's the thing. I feel like often that's where we stop. We're like, they have septic shock. We're going to give them some fluids and some antibiotics and call it a day. 
But then we get more data. And this is, I think, where it often falls apart. Is the next step that you should be doing if you're truly doing an iterative hypothesis testing approach is to start saying, okay, I had a hypothesis. I tested that hypothesis by doing X, Y, and Z things for management. What data do I now have? Let me collect data about me testing that hypothesis with my management and assimilate that data and then figure out what it means. Did the patient respond well to it or didn't they? Did I have some new labs come back? And use that new data to revise my hypothesis, adjust the management again, assimilate more data, rinse, and repeat. Now, I feel like I need to go on a little sort of theoretical or philosophical tangent here. Because the question I often get when my residents or other people start trying to approach this like this at the bedside is we rapidly run up against evidence-based medicine. Now, we spend a whole lot of time talking about evidence-based medicine. Much of our education is about this paper or that and this new guideline and this new evidence. And I think that there is a place for that for sure. I think the place of that in sick patients and critical care is really complicated and that we should not sacrifice our patients on the altar of evidence-based medicine. We need to be a little thoughtful about that and we need to make evidence-based medicine a important component of what we do, but recognize that it can only take us so far. And I think part of the reason is that evidence-based medicine likes to declare winners and losers, right? What are most studies about? There we compared intervention A to intervention B and intervention A was better or worse or the same. But we're trying to find a yes, no, black, white, good, bad solution because we're humans, we like those things. Is A better than B? That is how most studies are designed. But I feel like that's simply the wrong question, especially in critical ill patients. When there's multiple complicated treatment components, it's not just, you know, do we give albuterol or not? There's multiple treatment components. The patients are very complicated. Things change really quickly. Rather than asking, is A better than B? Instead, we need to shift to asking, what is the right tool in this situation? What are all the tools in my toolkit? How do I best use them? When should I use them? And I got to learn how to use them. Because there's another thing here that I think evidence-based medicine doesn't really talk about or think about, which is operator dependence. We can't forget about that, right? It seems obvious to us that a surgeon in the OR is going to do a much better job at an appendectomy than I am, obviously. But for somehow, we think it's less obvious that I might do a much better job than a surgeon at managing shock, at managing a ventilator, because I'm expert at it. So for some reason, we think that vent protocols and shock protocols and evidence-based whatever are the way to go, but that completely takes evidence too far, and I think takes expertise completely out of the equation. And that's why I feel okay saying that I'm thinking about an expertise-driven problem-solving approach rather than a purely evidence-based problem-solving approach. And because of that, I think that you need to take evidence into account, particularly when you're starting to talk about resuscitation targets, um, but it can't be your whole thing. In order to connect these ideas, we do for a moment have to talk about three things, which is the difference between goals, targets, and strategies. Because where do we put evidence-based medicine in all of this? And also, where do we put the numbers and the data that we get? So goals, this is pretty easy. Our goal is to make the patient better, done, everybody agrees, call it a day. The problem gets to be when we conflate our goals with our targets, because our targets, are the ways that we think along the way, there are markers that we're along the path to make our patient better. Because when we give a patient antibiotics, we don't expect them to magically get better in the next five minutes, do we? No, we don't. And targets, that is where evidence-based medicine is really helpful. Targets help us figure out things like, getting a patient CV CVP to X doesn't make the patient better, and we used to think that that was a good resuscitation target, that we could target a CVP. If we achieved that CVP, that would make the patient better. That was a marker we were doing the right thing. Then eventually we got a lot of evidence that actually that doesn't matter at all. So targets are very, very helpful. The problem with targets is that as much as it would be nice, there's not a single magic number that tells you the right answer. In shock, it's not a lactate. It's not a creatinine. It's not a urine output. It's not a cap refill. It's all of those things. And we want it to be one number, 
But in reality, this is another place where we have to sort of put the whole picture together and be very thoughtful about assimilating our data in a way that takes into account what the data means and doesn't mean, and try not to say, well, this tests it this and therefore this. The only time that you can really do that, like a pregnancy test does that, but very few other things do. And don't forget that making the numbers pretty doesn't necessarily make the patient better. They're not the same thing. So you have to critically evaluate your numbers and think about what's important and what do they really mean? Because it's ultimately the numbers that you're going to plug in to your strategy. And your strategy, this is where expertise really comes in. Because, you know, getting to your goal, that's what we all want to do. Um, you know, saying that I have all these targets along the way, and even if you believe, okay, I am pretty sure that I know the right targets to achieve, whether it's lactate clearance, improvement of urine output, just getting better on the eyeball test. You know, I think I have the right targets to achieve my goal. Just because you have the right targets doesn't mean you have the right strategy to get there. And this is where iterative hypothesis testing and expertise comes in. And as I said, this model can be applied to ventilator management, to shock management, to so many things in critical care. And my iterative hypothesis testing approach, my strategy for getting to my goal with shock is as follows. It looks something like this. I just ask myself basically a series of questions, collect data, and then go back. And specifically for shock, I go like this. Question one. I've started with my initial hypothesis. I think that my patient is in shock and I started with some initial hypothesis about why they're in shock. So then I do some management, I test that hypothesis and then I reassess. And by all the different little data points that I'm using, I'm asking myself, is my patient actually getting better? If it is not getting better, then is it actually the type of shock I thought it was? And this, this is where I bring in my three pressures model because I'm like, okay, I thought it was, in Mrs. Jones's case, for example, we're going to go back to her in a minute. I thought it was a problem with the forward pressure. I thought that she was septic. And if I just gave her some fluids and some norepi, then great, it would get better, but it didn't. So do I now need to go back and revise what kind of shock it is? And if so, if she's not in septic shock, what kind of shock is she? Her LVEF was okay. Like what's actually happening? So maybe that's the issue. You know, maybe it's just not actually a, the type of shock I thought it was. Maybe I got it wrong, but there's also another possibility in her. The possibility that maybe I was just failing to treat the shock precipitants because, you know, they got in that river that they're swimming against somehow. And so is it just that she has mesenteric ischemia and it's getting worse and she now has horrible abdominal sepsis? Is that my problem? So then after I've asked myself that question, then I'm like, but okay. If it's the kind of shock I think it's in, and I'm treating the precipitants appropriately, maybe I'm just failing to offload the physiologic stress. Maybe I'm just like failing to give her enough support. Does she need more fluids? Does she need more vasopressors? Do I need a stronger antibiotic? And then finally, I ask myself, maybe she started out um, as abdominal shock, as abdominal sepsis, but maybe we gave her too many fluids and now she developed cardiogenic shock, for example. And so as I'm going through my process, I ask myself these questions, I collect more data, I make another hypothesis, and then I go forward. And often people are like, and how do you make sure you don't miss anything big? The, the mistake I see people make most frequently when they miss something truly big in shock is forgetting about what I call Murphy's Law of Resuscitation, which is the more things that have gone wrong, the more things that will go wrong. Because the sicker a patient is, the more stuff we're doing to them. The more things we're giving to them, the more medications they can have a reaction to, the more procedures that can go wrong, or just the more things that can develop because, you know, maybe now she's just having mesenteric ischemia, but then it ruptures and she has actually abdominal sepsis. So that's what I say about how to take this process and just check yourself to make sure you're not missing anything big. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to put this all together. We're gonna put this idea together. And rather than saying, is my patient in shock? What's the blood pressure? Instead, we're now gonna ask, is my patient in shock? Are they perfusing? Instead of asking why my patient's in shock and saying either pipes, pump, tank, or are four different categories, we're gonna say, is that three pressures? 
Are they adding up to tissue perfusion or not? Which one of those do I need to fix? And then in talking about how do I fix my patient shock, what vectors can I actually optimize to improve tissue perfusion? So now let's take a minute and go back to Mrs. Jones. So recall that Mrs. Jones came in at the same time as Mr. Brown. She didn't look so good. Initially, her vital signs actually maybe looked a little bit better than his. She was tacky, but not hypotensive. But she looked really bad. And her lactate was high, and she just did not look good. And so even though her blood pressure was okay, this patient is in shock. Now, we're going to start looking through our data to be like, okay, this patient is in shock, right? She doesn't look good and her lactate's high. You go and examine her, she's not making any urine, she's altered, she's not perfusing her brain. Um, and you're like, yeah, okay, so she's in shock. So we've decided this. Okay, so what kind of shock do we think she's in? Well, we don't know yet. So we're gonna look at this data and figure it out. Now her white count's 13, that could be consistent with infection or it could be consistent with physiologic stress. We notice this little bump in her LFTs that's not super high. Her bilia is not high. Could that be a source? Is there something going on in her biliary tract? So I'm going to file these things away. I'm going to plug them in. And I don't quite know where yet, but I'm going to plug those in the data. Maybe it's sepsis. Now, here we go. We look at her chest x-ray. And there's another piece of data here, which, as I'm sure a lot of you noticed, her heart looks a little generous. I'm going to look really hard at that air. Is that free air under the diaphragm? Actually, probably not. It's probably a big gastric bubble. Maybe it's free air, but I don't think so yet. We're going to get a CT anyways, but that heart looks a little generous. Now let's look here. And her LVEF, it looks fantastic, but, you know, the RV looks a little bit large. I'm going to collect a little bit more data here. I'm going to do a parasternal short view. And the minute I do that, I see a really impressive D sign. That RV looks big. It is struggling. It is not looking good. But now we're going to collect some more data. Because just as we gave Mr. Brown treatment, we're giving Ms. Jones treatment. And we treated her because at the time, our best hypothesis was septic shock. So we treated her appropriately. But we then had two more important pieces of data. The first one is that the wet read of her abdomen looks like mesenteric ischemia. And the next one is the treatment made her worse. So. Now what I'm going to do here, I'm going to go back here and say, okay, my pressures are not adding up right. My pressures are not adding up to tissue perfusion. Why not? Well, that's one hypothesis that she has sepsis. Abdominal sepsis was our first hypothesis, but is there another hypothesis here? And there is. Going back, this other hypothesis, looking at her lactate, looking at her LFTs, that big heart, that RV is struggling, the belly pain, the mesenteric ischemia, I'm going to put this together in a very different way. Actually, what I think is happening is, what if this lady has right heart failure, which it looks like she does? What if she instead has pulmonary hypertension? What if what's really happening is that it's not that it's septic shock. It's not that our forward pressure is low because she's vasodilated and hypovolemic. What if the problem is? that her back pressure is high, that she's in right heart failure because she has pulmonary hypertension. And it turned out she did a bunch of meth or she didn't have pulmonary hypertension. So all that fluid is backing up like crazy. And remember, the right heart doesn't back up into the lungs, it backs up into the abdomen. So all that elevated pressure gives you congestive hepatopathy, abdominal distension, abdominal pain. You know where else all that back pressure backs up? into the mesenteric veins. And when that happens, you get mesenteric ischemia, not from something like AFib thuringia clot, not from a stenosis, basically not from a decrease in forward pressure, but from an increase in back pressure. And that would explain the LFTs. It would explain her echo. It would explain her clear lungs with the big heart on the chest x-ray. It explains the mesenteric ischemia and it would explain why she's not getting better with the treatment we gave her. So now this is our alternative hypothesis. We're now gonna say, okay, we plugged in the data and we've now formed an alternative hypothesis that we're gonna to apply to this patient. We're now gonna use our three pressures model to say, okay, if that's the case and improving the forward pressure doesn't work, what can I do to improve the back pressure? So if somebody has pulmonary hypertension and the RV is overflowing with pressure and 
you know, at that point, the fluids aren't going to work. The norepi's probably not going to work. What are we going to do? Well, what did we do? Well, all of a sudden, her treatment starts to look a little similar to Mr. Brown's in that what we did instead, based on our other hypothesis, was we gave her Lasix to try and offload her back pressure, to try and offload that right ventricle because it just all that fluid building up is not helping anything and anybody. We gave her some inhaled nitric oxide to decrease her pressures because why is all of this backing up? Why is part of the reason her back pressure is so high? because her right ventricle is pooping out because it can't handle the high pulmonary pressures. And then finally, we gave her some epinephrine to now help the forward pressure, not by helping the left ventricle and not by helping the distributive shock because that's not what she's in. We gave it to her to support the right ventricle contracting and sending blood to the left ventricle and therefore improving her forward flow and ultimately tissue perfusion. And after we did all these things, I kid you not, the next page I get about her, like a couple hours later, was she had gotten a lot better as when demanding a sandwich, in fact. So hopefully now I have convinced you that thinking about shock in the way we were taught to think about shock is not always the best way to do it. And that maybe this is the beginning of a different way of thinking about shock that will maybe get you there with patients that was hard to with your previous mental model of shock and wrapping your head around that or at least starting to use it and thinking about it at least when you have sick patients and see if it's helpful for you. That's all, thank you. Dr. Craker, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I know we're running a little short on time. Any questions yeah. from the live audience? If you do, raise your hand. Um, Dr. Zigray and Dr. Kerner will come around with the mic. Meanwhile, the online group, um, anybody have questions? You can unmute yourself and ask directly. It's like, while people are thinking about it, could I just say, it, you're... You're speaking, uh, the quality of your speaking is off the charts. I mean, you're very animated. You emphasize your points really well. People should take notes of this. Also, your eye contact with the camera to be able to reach a, and make a human connection <laughs> over distance is exceptional. All of us, uh, in the, all of you in this room and those of you online are going to be asked to give online talks and make, make connections with people like that. And this was a class, this was a you know, master class on how to do that. Your visuals augmented what you were talking about. Um, it was just off the charts. Really, really well done. Thank, Thank you, you so much for doing this. So. Makes sense why your chair said we need to reach out to you. I'm so <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Any questions? Yeah, go ahead. Is the mic working? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Um, so when you were talking about the backflow. Um, I was wondering, are you using the VEXA score a lot or are you seeing that more and more mm -hmm. and determining whether or not, because I'm seeing a lot of that with like, oh, they're having yeah. kidney injury. We need to give them more fluid. And in fact, then the creatinine goes up. So I was kind of thinking yes. that's kind of a similar pattern. A hundred percent. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That is a way that's cardiorenal syndrome, what you're describing basically. And that's exactly it. And the VEXA score is fantastic. Um, and I think it's another piece of data. And as we expand our sort of mental model of shock to include more emphasis on the back pressure, VEXA, I think, is going to become more and more of a process that we use when we're ultrasounding our patients. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, I feel like that question tells me that more than anything else, that hopefully this lecture made sense because you basically just took the concept and applied it in a different clinical situation. And that's exactly right. We have another question in the room here. I'm uh, curious as to what ended up happening for that uh, obstructive shock case. Yeah. So this lady, it turned out she had really bad pulmonary hypertension, but it was undiagnosed because she had it from meth. And even once she was with it again, and she got, came totally back to normal again, she had no idea that she had a pulmonary hypertension. And um, basically, we ended up diuresing her aggressively. We ended up ultimately starting her on some milrinone uh, to help the RV. We kept her on the inhaled pulmonary vasodilators. We ended up having to diurese her a lot. Her mesenteric ischemia resolved completely, pretty much. And then we ended up sending her home on sildenafil. Unfortunately, she has, she basically 
was just not able to follow up because her social situation, she continued doing meth. And I saw her again in the ED a couple months later in a very similar situation. And um, she was not doing well. And she since then had multiple hospitalizations because she just, from a social perspective, hasn't been able to actually maintain the treatment she needs, unfortunately. Well, Dr. Craiger, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. If there are more questions that come to me via email, yeah. I'll send them your way. If Absolutely. Okay. Please do. Yeah, that'd be great. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so awesome. much. It was great. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. It was great to meet all of you. Dr. Craiger is powerful with just audio, but when you add in the opportunity to see her well-thought-out slides, the hand gestures and facial expressions that she adds for emphasis, the whole package is even more impactful. If you are looking for someone to inspire your department, I highly recommend that you reach out to Dr. Craiger. I realize she's presenting at ASAP 2022, and it's for obvious reasons that she's amazing. Um, if you want to connect with her, you can do so on Twitter at Sarah Crager. Also, don't forget her website, icuedu.org. Please don't hesitate to reach out to the show as well at alwaysonem at gmail.com or through our Twitter account at alwaysonem or through Instagram as well. If you enjoyed this, please take a moment, like, subscribe, comment. It really makes a difference for our podcast and our show. And until next time, keep on rising. The Always On EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. 